Welcome to the HR Chat Podcast, bringing the best of the HR, talent, and leadership communities to you. For more episodes and the latest articles covering what's new in the world of work, visit hrgazette.com, subscribe and follow us on social media. Hello, and welcome to another episode of the HR Chat Podcast. I'm Pauline James, founder and CEO of Anchor HR, and it's my pleasure to be your host today. In this episode, we ask, how can we be more effective and evidence-based with our diversity, equity, and inclusion strategies and programs? Listen to as we discuss the Agility Reimagined Summit held downtown Toronto on September 14th. Joining me on the show is Miranda Mackay, a people analytics consultant who specializes in diversity, equity, and inclusion, the founder and principal of Mackay Consultants, Inc., Miranda has worked at top-tier consulting firms in data architecture, data engineering, data analytics, and data strategy. Previously, she also led the people analytics function for Accenture Applied Intelligence Canada. Miranda is passionate about advancing women and women of color in the workplace. She has worked on various initiatives focused on utilizing artificial intelligence capabilities to gain insights on systemic barriers that impact marginalized groups. Her work has led her to be the 2020 recipient of Catalyst Canada's Emerging Leader Award. Miranda currently lectures at Canadian universities teaching people analytics. Miranda, welcome to the HR Chat Podcast. Beyond my short introduction, please begin by taking a minute to tell the HR Chat listeners a little more about yourself. Yeah, thanks. Well, first off, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. And, you know, I think the intro said it well that I'm a data nerd, let's just say. I love using data for everything, but especially in the diversity, equity, and inclusion space. Uh, and that's really my area of expertise is how organizations can start to be more strategic around DEI uh, by leveraging data capabilities to really drive those objectives. Thank you. Let's dig into the concept of being evidence-based in our approach to DNI. Can you provide an overview of the approach you recommend? What do you see more successful organizations doing differently? Yeah, for sure. So I find in terms of an approach, you know, it's so funny because so many organizations will reach out and say, Miranda, we need a DEI strategy or a DEI roadmap. And, you know, they don't really know where to get started. They don't even really understand what the root cause of some of their challenges are within the organization. And usually the leaders aren't aligned on what a DEI strategy or what some of those goals even look like. So that's where I always like to start um, is the first piece of aligning kind of from the top down with leaders on what are you trying to achieve? And how does DEI really drive some of your strategic objectives? So if you think about the entire employee life cycle, how is recruitment or optimizing your recruitment or bringing in diverse candidates going to help drive maybe project delivery? Um, how is a successful onboarding program for all employees going to help ensure productivity within your organization? So the first step is really that, right? Aligning leaders on um, some of those strategic objectives and then diving into, you know, where are those opportunities or where do we think those opportunities exist? Which is a polite way for saying, what are the gaps and what are the problems? Um, so essentially I like to work with organizations really on um, finding out what the problems are. Um, and that's where you start to dive into the data. So there's kind of two folds to look at that. One is through, you know, anonymous surveys, which are fantastic to kind of go out and understand sentiment. But even better is looking at some of the internal source systems like HISs, ATSs, LMSs, et cetera, and starting to analyze that data to see where there's gaps. So as an example, 
do diverse demographics have a lower proportion to promotions than others? Um, you know, is there issues with pay equity, as an example? Um, you know, within uh, your LMS, are there certain groups of people that are participating in professional development programs or not participating? And this really helps give the baseline of where some of those areas are or challenges are. And essentially what you're trying to understand are where are some of those systemic institutional barriers and how do we start to address that? And once you have that understanding of you know, the problems and what you're trying to solve for, it's always a really good practice as well to work through you know, validating that as well. Data is great, but storytelling and understanding perspectives employees is also really great as well. So working through focus groups and sessions to really help interpret that data to dive into it a little bit further. And now that you've done all of that evidence base and really understand, you know, what's the problem, where are those gaps, that's when you can really start to go into solutioning. So looking across people, process, and technology, what do we really need to do to drive DEI and ensuring that that aligns again to the strategic objectives. We'll be right back to this conversation after this very brief message from today's sponsoring partner. EmpTrust HR Solutions provides human capital management and talent management solutions and services for a global workforce. Their core HR solutions help companies to create great onboarding experiences for new hires through new hire portals, forms, and task management with advanced tools. Learn more at emptrust.com. Thank you. Uh, coming back to systemic barriers that you are endeavoring to uncover with the analysis that you're speaking to, where do you see organizations succeeding in more effectively removing systemic barriers? And where do you see that they could do better? Mm, great question. So I find, you know, organizations in terms of where some of the, the challenges are, where they're doing okay, and is, is looking at some of their processes uh, and policies, and that there's been a lot of focus on recruitment of how to diversify talent pipelines. And I mean, especially with that tying into the, the great resignation and the challenges of just bringing in talent, a lot of organizations are doing a much better job in terms of you know, looking at some of those challenges and saying, we need people, we need to hire people. So how do we adjust our processes and policies to do that? Where I see not maybe doing so well um, is one data capture. <laughs> Right. Um, a lot of organizations, if we're looking at um, how they're capturing information, if you think of a traditional HRIS, the only demographic data that's often collected is gender identity uh, data. And often that's biological gender and not even really looking at gender identity. So then when you're trying to dive into some of those root causes like promotion or retention issues, it's really difficult to um, dive into that further in terms of understanding what are some of those challenges from diverse demographics and having that trending over time to really understand if you're improving or not improving. Um, so I think there's a lot organizations can do better in terms of kind of capturing uh, some better quality data. Uh, and when organizations set out to improve how they're capturing data, any advice you would provide to them? Yeah, um, I always say, you know, it, it's always really uh, scary when you're starting to capture more data, especially as an HR professional. Uh, you know, HR professionals aren't necessarily data people, right? Not historically. If you studied HR in school, you didn't necessarily have stats classes or things like that to understand how to capture it. You're not necessarily data privacy people. Uh, so it's a really daunting thing. So I always recommend as you're starting to think about capturing more data, 
starting with building almost like a steering committee or a group of people that you can pull on for that expertise. So think about how you involve maybe your in-house counsel um, to support you on what data can you collect and how should you be collecting that in the most ethical way. Bringing in someone who's focused on data privacy. How are you going to secure data and ensure that employees are protected throughout that process? And then even thinking about from an ethics perspective, how are you analyzing and using that data to really drive, you know, uh, a better workplace culture for employees as opposed to some things that maybe are less ethical? And setting up that committee is a really great way to kind of check yourselves and get that momentum and moving a bit forward. Thank you. Um and I presume also really valuable in helping build trust within the organization about what you're endeavoring to accomplish. Exactly, exactly. I always say, you know, even uh, organizations are often be like, well, what will employees think if I'm asking them to self-identify or capturing this information? And I always say, why don't you communicate to them of why you're using it, right? As a woman of color myself, if someone told me they're capturing my demographic data so that I can be paid equitably, uh, so that uh, they're ensuring that I'm being promoted equitably, et cetera, et cetera, I will probably more likely give them that data as opposed to thinking about, you know, it's just a tick the box initiative for, you know, hitting targets or whatever it is. So that communication, you're so correct. It, it's key in creating that trust and getting people and employees to participate in that in that work. Miranda, you participated on a panel at the Agility Reimagined Summit produced by the HR Gazette and Anchor HR downtown Toronto yep. on September 14th. The panel discussed how do we ensure a connected, inclusive, and performance-oriented culture in a more tech-enabled and remote environment. Can you share any key takeaways you were hoping attendees had? Yeah. Oh, first off, I have to say it was an amazing panel and anyone who missed it, oh, I'm so sorry. I wish you guys were able to be there. It was such a great event. Uh, and thank you, Pauline, for, for organizing that. Um, but yeah, I think some of the key takeaways were really one that, that stood out to me was recognizing that people are people. And, you know, workplace flexibility is just so important in terms of capturing uh, and recruiting top talent, as well as retaining them. Um, and especially as we're moving to this remote, um, this remote workplace, we need to recognize that what we did is in the past, you know, of that everyone's coming in and working nine to five and, you know, clocking in kind of environment. And we're moving to the future and the future of work is flexible working hours, understanding that people are people, right? And they have, they have needs just like you and I have needs and they're not machines, so we need to be a little bit more accommodating to really ensure that we're supporting them to get the best organizational culture and even productivity out of them. Thank you. Uh, and really appreciated your your contributions and your insights. And and you were one of, of a few that also noted that this isn't about reducing performance expectations. It's really around more closely aligning on expectations and success measures and working collaboratively on how those can be accomplished. Exactly. I mean, I don't know about you, but I was never a fan of someone staring over my shoulder and making sure I was getting my work done. I don't think anyone works really productively in an environment like that. And the thought that that's still somewhat the culture of where we think that that's where we're going to yield the most, you know, 
uh, ROI from our employees is just so, I would say, a little bit dated, right? Um, where we do really need to move into a, a, a different space where we're saying, you know, what do you need? What do you need to be successful and how can I support that? Because uh, ultimately, you know, an employee, if they really feel that they believe in their leader and within the organization, they're going to do more for you. If they just feel that they're, you know, there to clock in and clock out, you're not going to get the most work out of them. The days of matching web keyword searches with resumes and job descriptions is over. It's all about cultural fit. Workzinger empowers job seekers looking for jobs and employers looking for new hires to have thoughtful and insightful conversations, making the recruiting process more successful for both sides. Learn more at workzinger.com. Well, thank you. And it's been, it's great that you've been a champion of more objective measures at the organizational individual level than standing over someone's shoulder monitoring. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You've been supporting organizations in addressing inherent bias in AI models. If we take just a bit of a different track with our discussion, can you tell us more about this work? Yeah, for sure. AI is great and it's an amazing thing that's going to help people spend less time on task-based work and move to more strategic work. Um, so it is truly a you know fantastic place and we're moving there. It's happening, you know, everyone that's trying to hold off on it, you know, it, it's going to happen and we have to accept it. But, you know, when we're talking about AI and we're starting to build models, especially in the HR space and we're building models at, at scale, it's so important that we're bringing in ethics and we're checking bias in those processes. So I can, I can, you know, give an example. There was a mortgage company in the U.S. They were automating um, how they give out mortgages to people, right? Um, and they were doing this at scale so that someone's not manually doing this, obviously. And what was happening was Black and Latino um, people were not getting mortgages at the same rates as white people. And it was primarily because the AI model they had built was biased because they were using training data from historical, you know, mortgage lending that they were getting. And then it resulted in now at scale, you know, uh, people actually not getting mortgages that were Black and Latino. So, you know, that's just like an example of as we're moving to this AI model, especially in HR, as an example of recruitment where you're seeing a lot of things like natural language processing used to scan resumes or chatbots uh, to bring in candidates for interviews, et cetera. We need to make sure that that bias is eliminated and that when we're bringing in some of our historical data that we're recognizing, that bias may exist in it and it may cause problems if we're trying to do that at scale. And as I was talking earlier about that ethics committee, or that AI committee, that's a great way to use them, of checking yourself. We're going to be building a model. Um, how are we making sure that we're removing bias uh, along the way? And it's always important to remember when you're working on these AI models, usually you're working with data scientists and developers. They're not necessarily ethics professionals, right? They are not HR professionals. So it's really important that that extra layer of uh, guidance and advisory is there to make sure that we're not doing something like that example that I just given, where we're creating, you know, institutional, uh, you know, racism essentially at scale uh, to to people. 
Thank you. Uh, and I appreciate your, your call out that it is coming and we do want organizations experimenting with AI and determining how they can um, automate certain processes that are labor intensive, that delay responsiveness to employees, but also how important it is that they are um, ensuring to the best of their capability that there's not inherent bias within systems. You, you noted leveraging um, the committee that's in place, do you have other tips for organizations? Yeah, and it's it's always bringing in too, like experts outside of the organization as well that can help support that um, to provide that level of check. So like, you know, if you're going to be developing these AI models, it's probably good to have even a DEI person there to be like, huh, what about this? It's also really good to make sure that you understand some of your organization's institutional biases that may have existed. So as we were talking earlier about understanding the root cause of the problem, understand maybe biased processes or policies you may have at an institutional level. You should have a good understanding of that um, before you're even building some of these models, because if you don't, you're just replicating that, again, those institutional problems at scale and it's impacting more people. So it's great to jump into it. It's great to experiment. I agree with failing fast and understanding that, but recognizing that as we're launching these huge models that are impacting so many more people, that risk is so much higher. As we finish up, I know this was a short discussion. How should li listeners reach out to you if they would like to learn more and connect with you? Yeah, for sure. Um, so you can always reach out to me from my website. It's MackayConsultants.com or even by email at Miranda at MackayConsultants.com. Thank you for taking time out of your day to share your insights with us, Miranda. It was great of you. Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. Thanks for listening to this episode of the HR Chat Podcast. There are hundreds of conversations with business experts available for free on the HR Gazette website, Apple, Spotify, and all the main platforms. And remember to like, subscribe, and follow us on social media.